one of the skills I think it's so vitally important to teach right now, especially in this social media age, is how to disagree without being disagreeable. When you're on social media, you know, if, if somebody is to the left of you, you call them a communist. If somebody's to the right of you, you call them a fascist. We call people names. We say nasty things about them. For what? Because we disagree on an issue? How can we disagree and maybe disagree very passionately, but still have the students feel safe when they're leaving? And one of the ways I, I think I accomplish that is by feeling that, look, I'm putting myself on the line with you guys too. I'm not asking you to do it, but I'm going to sit in the corner and just play referee. I'm going to do it with you. And hopefully at the end of the day, we disagree. That's fine. We'll still be okay when we leave. And that's the skill they need to get out of this. That is Anthony Curran, high school U.S. history and law teacher at Bayport Blue Point High School in Bayport, New York, who joins us to discuss his career path and how he addresses current events in the classroom. Join us as it's time to get schooled with Mr. S. Hello, and it's great to have you back for another show. If you're new to our audience, welcome. I think you'll like this podcast. My name is Mr. S, and today we have a special show lined up for you. One of the challenges based on my discussions with social studies teachers is how to weave in current and topical events in a way where you preserve the objectivity and interest for students. Sometimes administration can be very restrictive on teachers. Don't give your personal opinion. Don't even discuss the issues. Of course, if you're teaching social studies, that approach isn't going to work. You need something that allows the students to first understand the material, make a context of it, and then be able to debate and discuss it critically. Now, the question comes in for teachers is, how do you walk that fine line between getting the students to interact on these issues versus injecting your own opinion into the debate? Or is that okay? So our guest, Anthony Curran, will talk about that challenge, and you'll find out more about his unique path to the classroom. It's all coming up next on Get Schooled with Mr. S. When I got into the podcast game, I had no idea what I was doing. I needed advice, someone to bounce ideas off of, and someone to handle all the back-end production work. Bearcat Group helped guide me through the process. They work with me on the feel of the show, rundowns, and help set up all the equipment in my house. They even helped me create my show's artwork and social handles. I was in good hands with the team at Bearcat Group. They really worked hard to make me feel comfortable. Bearcat Group offers experienced editors and engineers, professional producers, and a totally virtual production process. 24-hour turnaround time on recordings, publishing, and distribution options. They even have equipment you can rent if needed. Now that Get Schooled with Mr. S is up and running, they produce, edit, and publish the podcast, leaving me just to worry about the content of the show. If you are looking to start an audio or video podcast, check them out, bearcatgroup.com, and speak with them about your vision, and they'll make it happen. That's bearcatgroup.com. They make podcasting easy. Welcome back to another episode of Get Schooled. I'm Mr. S, and I'm very excited to have our next guest on. He's a veteran social studies teacher in Bayport Blue Point High School in New York, and we welcome Anthony Curran to the show. Anthony, thanks for joining me on Get Schooled. Thanks for having me. 
You had a, a very interesting career arc that landed you in education. Would you share that with the audience? I never intended to be a teacher, at least when I was in college. And it's a good lesson for students that what you think you're going to do with your life isn't necessarily where you end up. Um, I went to college. I was going to be the next Yankee broadcaster. Um, in fact, I started out in print journalism, but uh, a friend of mine um, that I was taking a class with told me, why don't you join the radio station? Uh, you like sports. They need sports broadcasters. I said, OK, I'll do that. And I had a blast. And I did radio. I called Hofstra football games. Remember when there was Hofstra football? Uh, called Hofstra basketball games, baseball. But maturity wise, I wasn't ready to make a career out of it and do the type of things that you need to do to get to a career there. So the travel, the um, the amount of work that you have to put in outside of doing the broadcast. I just wanted to get on the air and broadcast. And I so I took the LSATs. I went to law school for a year. I was enjoying school. Um, I got into law school at Hofstra. And about a month in, I knew that law school wasn't for me. I liked the idea of the law. I just kind of knew that I wasn't going to make a good lawyer. Um, so I had paid for the year, very expensive year. So I stayed for the year. And again, got some good advice from a couple of very good friends. You know, you'd be a good teacher. You like talking. You like being in front of people. Why don't you give teaching a try? So I transferred to the ed school. Um, I took education. I enjoyed it. I found. I felt like I finally found a home where this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, but I needed money. Um, I had been in school for now five and a half years at this point. And New York City had a program where you could teach professionally without being a student teacher. Basically, you'd student teach your own classroom. So I got hired um, in the fall of 2000 while I'm still working on my teaching program to go teach in Brownsville, New York, um, one of the most challenging neighborhoods in the city. And it's funny, you know, 20 years later, it's still, I think, the best teaching I ever did. Um, you had kids that desperately, desperately wanted to learn from you. Some that didn't, but the ones that wanted to learn from you would do anything for you. Um, the problem was is that once the city realized they had somebody who they seemed to like, but didn't have their certification, they would kind of mess with your certification to make sure you couldn't go anywhere else. So they told me I was teaching an English class at the time in addition to social studies. So they said, well, we can't really give you certification right now because you're not teaching a full social studies schedule. Luckily, I had an advisor at Hofstra. I gave him a call. I said, what should I do? He said, give your, give your notice. And I said, do I have to give a month's notice or anything like that? He said, no, give, give a week's notice. What are they going to do? cancel your certification. You don't have one. I have a student teaching spot opening up in Baldwin. A teacher dropped out and I don't want to lose the spot. You can be student teaching in Baldwin. So I quit New York City one weekend and I'm student teaching after I've already been a teacher in Baldwin the next week, which was kind of bizarre. I went from teaching social studies and English to seventh graders to student teaching with a teacher that taught seniors full time. And I did that, made it through, um, did a year of subbing in Massapequa, um, in my home district where I went to high school um, and thought I was going to get hired full time there. But they negotiated a union contract where the AP teachers beforehand had taught four classes a day and now they were going to teach five. And they went from needing a teacher to figuring out how to not lose two of them. And all of a sudden I'm interviewing now and I got hired in Bayport Blue Point very luckily. 
where I've spent the last 20 years and or 19 years. I'm going to be going into my 20th year next year. And so that's the path I took to get to where I was. In an alternate universe, if the city had handled it differently, do you think you would have stayed there longer? Absolutely. I, if the city had worked with me on my certification, I would probably still be just teaching in District 23. I loved it there. It was it was tough. It was the toughest work I've done in 21 years of, t- of, of being in the education business, but it was the most rewarding. Um, teaching kids that came into your room barely able to read, you know, seventh graders barely able to read, and you're teaching them how to read. You know, teaching them social studies where they hadn't ever gotten that before and they're getting it from you and they would i can't stress enough how the kids that wanted to learn there would do anything for you and it was just such i i i don't get me wrong i love what i'm doing now i love my students now but it is a different level of reward when you get it from kids that can't get it from anywhere else and the appreciation that you get just from a student to teacher is just something I saw my first year teaching and I'll probably never see again. The education has a greater value. I know from my experience, some of the students, they don't feel they need the education because maybe financially they've got it or maybe they take over the family business. It's a really different dynamic, isn't it? It's different in the sense that to get the buy-in, you have to come at students especially now, but any, really most students, it was a lot easier to find the buy-in there. But now you have, you have to relate it to the students in some way. The students have to feel, and, there, and there's nothing wrong with this, by the way, the students have to feel like there's something in it for them. You're giving them something that's of use to them. Otherwise, it's just going to go in one of their ears and out the other because they're saying to themselves, well, how am I going to use this in my next step in life, whatever it is, sure. that doesn't involve being in, a, in an 11th grade social studies classroom. So I try as much as I can to relate it to their real life, which is easier, say, in a social studies class than, say, a math class, um, you know, if you're doing trigonometry or something. But when you do it and it, they catch on that there's a connection to them, then you've got them all in. Have you grown? How have you grown as an educator uh, with all your years in Bayport? That's a long time. Yeah, it's you know what happens. I feel like every few years education reinvents itself. Um, I came in, and a lot of it is technology based. To be fair, I came in. I was teaching on a chalkboard, mm-hmm. and I got to share a classroom with a teacher who, if you ever seen the movie A Beautiful Mind, would use every inch of the board and was willing to give me about four square inches that I could use myself. So now I'm using an overhead projector, which again, 20 years ago, I mean, top of the line technology. And then all of a sudden, you'll remember the smart board movement happened. So everything you thought you were doing before, and you know, I was a curmudgeon even at the ripe age of 25. So I said, oh God, new technology. What am I going to do with this? You know what? It'll make a beautiful overhead screen. Um, And then you realize what the technology can do. And it totally changes the way you teach. I can link a video into something I'm doing. Um, I can have audio tracks of actual speeches rather than having the kids read a speech. I can have an audio track of the actual speech going on behind me. And and that changed everything. Then, of course, in the last few, uh, the last couple of years, you had the inclusion of things like Google Classroom, where you had the the ability to send videos to kids at home and you had the ability to have assignments linked at home. So if a kid wasn't in school, they could basically get, you know, 50 to 60% of what you were doing in the classroom rather than 
when they come back, okay, here's what you missed. No, here's, you can get what you miss every single day, but it required you to have that all ready to go every single day in advance on a, on a computer system that you may not quite understand, but you're kind of figuring out as you go and you're getting training and such, but you have to really have to figure it out for yourself. And now, of course, with the pandemic, it's come full circle where now we're teaching by Google. Um, which none of us ever expected to be doing, but it's kind of we've adapted on on the fly. I know teachers love to use the phrase learning to fly the plane while we're building it. And this is certainly that. But it, it kind of it, it seems driven by technology, but it seems like once every few years, everything that you're doing kind of evolves. It's funny you mentioned Google Classroom. This is my 20th year teaching, and I went from someone asking um, if I put stuff on Google Classroom, and my response was, what is Google Classroom, to, over the years, posting just the assignment, then attaching the assignments, then attaching links, and now it's now the primary mode in this pandemic. Uh, I only take paper in a pinch you know, because of the pandemic, so it, it's amazing uh, just how quickly things have ramped up. What I've noticed is up until this year, leaving this year out, it freed up so much time in my classroom where before you'd have students write down notes. Well, now I could send them the notes in advance of the class and they have it in front of them and I can do other things that don't involve the notes. If they want to write things down, they can, but I have their notes that I would normally be taking, you know, 10%, 15, 20% of a class just them transcribing. Now it's that's 20% of the time in my classroom. I got back to do whatever I want. What do you think your students would say they like best about Mr. Curran's class? <sighs> I'd like them to say my sense of humor. I don't think that's so true though. Um, <laughs> I think what they would say they like, they have a friend in there. Not, not a friend in the sense that, you know, I'm going to be buddies with them when the class is over, but they're coming to a safe place. They know for that 40 minutes they're going to be safe with me. I'm going to do my best to teach the material to them. But they know that no matter what happens, I, I always tell them your grade in social studies, it's just a number. Nobody's going to remember 30 years from now what you got in U.S. history. Sure. Um, I don't remember what I got in U.S. history in high school. Um, it doesn't matter. I hope that they feel comfortable in my room. They learn a little something for 40 minutes. And I, and I think every student I have would come back and say, you know what? Um, it was a place I didn't mind being. And it was a place that if nothing else, I felt safe going in there and I didn't feel worse going out than when I came in. I think that's what they would say. That's a good, I think that's a good base standard because if you have that, then you can hit those higher things on the ladder. And, and it's also, you know, having a little bit of an, enough self-reflection to say, you know what, they're not going to leave the class worried about what the Ulysses Grant presidency was all about. Just for example, that's, it, 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 if they learn the basic ideas of citizenship and the basic ideas of what it means to be a citizen and what our history means and what our history teaches us without having to know all of the scandals that marred the Ulysses Grant presidency, then they're doing pretty well. Um, that's how I look at it. And because I look at it that way, I think the students get that as well. That makes sense. You're very involved beyond the school day in, in ways in making connections. Can you talk a little bit about what you do beyond the last bell? Yeah. Um, I always thought for a little bit about going into coaching. I never really did get into it. And I always joke, there's like the 7,500 reasons I don't. But um, I always got involved in the sports outside of coaching. Um, I do scorebooks for multiple sports. Um, I do clocks for multiple sports. I'm the PA voice of football. Um, PA voice of basketball. 
And, you know, it allows me to draw on some of the skills I learned in college when I was actually going to college as an undergrad to do something. I actually took those skills and actually did something with them. Um, I always joke, I'm like the I'm like the bowling pins. At the end of the game, the score is never my fault. So I get all of the fun of the sports without any of the hard decisions like who to cut from the team, um, how many hours of practice to have a week. I basically get to show up for the games and get the fun part of it without having to do the really the God's work that coaches do. I, I mean, I, I'm thoroughly in admiration of every coach that puts in that kind of time um, and, and the, the amount of effort and the amount of caring that goes into being a coach. Um, I get to see the reward end of it um, and have some fun with the students besides. And there is pressure to win at that varsity level. I think anywhere, you know, if coach goes one in 12 for three straight seasons, even the district, they may pull the plug. So, but as a scoreboard operator, you're right. I've done it. Um, you enjoy it. You can just watch the game and it can, it's a nice way to connect with students. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it's a funny story I tell, and, and, and this was from a bunch of years ago. Um, I'm standing up in the box doing PA for football. And a parent comes up to me and says, oh, thank you for saying my son's name right. He had a hard name to pronounce. It's like, oh, thank you for taking the time to learn my son's name right. And they, I said, oh, okay, okay, thanks for enjoying the game or whatever. And then they're leaving and you see them trudging down the stands and you know the next place they're going is to yell at the coach about something. Mm. So I see none of it on that end. That's interesting. Wow. Um, and you do some work. Uh, you're involved in the union as well. Yes, I am the grievance chair of, oh, wow. the, Bay, of the Bayport Blue Point Teachers Association. Um, I like to consider myself, you know, kind of the lieutenant in the army rather than the general. I think you can appreciate that. Sure. Um, I'm usually carrying out the orders, but I I go in and solve contractual problems. Um, that's kind of where my love is, is knowing our collective bargaining. Or I, I said contract and I broke my own first rule. The rule is it's an agreement and both sides agreed to it. So we don't call it a contract. And now I said contract. But um, knowing our collective bargaining agreement and most of the time it's, you know, people have a misconception of it like, oh, the, the district decided they're not going to pay you this week. And so you're going to go in and file a grievance. It's not like that. No. 99.9% of the time, it's well-reasoned people on both sides that there's just something in our CBA that's not clear. And both sides legitimately can read it one way or the other. And my job is to go in there and convince them that the way I'm reading it is better for all of us than the way they're reading it. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I like to think I succeed more often than I fail, but it's allowed me to have a very good, a, a really good relationship with the administration of the district, which I know a lot of fellow grievance chairs don't, but I, over the years, whether they've been superintendents we've been thrilled with or superintendents we're not as thrilled with, um, I've, I can proudly say that I've enjoyed a pretty good relationship with all of them. And I think all of them would say, if nothing else, that I'm fair. Um, they may not like where we end up on certain issues. I might not like where we end up, but I like to think I was fair and that I listened to everything that they had to say and that hopefully they listened to me. So the legal background really helps with things like that because sometimes when I'm, I'm doing similar work, I'm saying, geez, I wish I don't know the legality of X. Do you bring in some of that knowledge that you had when you went to law school? Um, some. I think, I, I think it could be both a plus and a minus. It's a plus in the sense for exactly the reason you said. Um, I have a rudimentary knowledge of the things a first-year law student would have, contra like contract law, basically, which is what would apply here. 
where it's a where it can be a problem is I have to remind myself, yeah, I know some of this stuff, but I'm not a lawyer. And they have lawyers working for them sure. that are a lot more versed in this than me. One of the first things I learned is to have a great relationship with your LRS, labor relations specialist, um, who we have an excellent one. We have, I think, the one who's the best in Suffolk County and Long Island. And I can put a phone call into him basically any time of day and run something by him and say, here's what I think. And he'll say, okay, that's where you're right. Or no, here's where you're totally wrong and stop being a lawyer. Um, and having that resource and knowing I better use that resource rather than thinking I know it all has been very, very valuable. I, th- I think that worked too. It's that balance between when when do you talk? When do you have to fight? I mean, that is, you know, that I wrestle with that too. That must be a challenge. The solution, and this is, this is the way I've handled, and luckily I have a president who, agrees with this. The solution is always to try to figure out, you know, I always think like by, back to like Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi, you, you learn karate so you don't have to fight. Um, I always look at it as I want to get a settlement because you could end up going into an arbitration and happening upon an arbitrator that totally disagrees with your position and leaves you 10 times worse off sure. than what the district was offering you to begin with. So, fighting for us always is a last resort. We might go in there, we might scream at each other, we might disagree with each other, we might, you know, use a couple of tactics that we have at our disposal that makes the district very uncomfortable. But I think both sides agree that the last place we want to end up with is somebody else telling us what the settlement's going to be. At the very least, let us, both myself and the district side of it, feel like both of us came to some sort of agreement, even if it's one that neither of us likes, rather than letting somebody do it for us and leaving either one or both of us in a position we're really unhappy with. And, and that makes sense. I'd like to talk, Anthony, about your world since the COVID shutdown, March 2020. How, how, what's your overall take how, when it first happened the following year? Give us some uh, insight about how you adapted to the COVID world as a teacher. Well... It's obviously, as we're talking now, it's right about the time when everything started to shut down. It was right around this week. About one, yeah, about about, one year. About exactly a year. And we went home thinking we were going to be home for a week. And when were we going to make up the time? Are we going to have to come in at the end of the year and make it up during summer vacation? And what if you had a vacation planned? And then we kind of came to the realization that this is going to be for the long haul. Um, And we started doing the online classes. Um, Our district made the choice, other districts didn't, that we weren't going to do live online teaching. We were going to have office hours. Um, You were free to to teach live online if you wanted to, but there was going to be no pressure to do so. I kind of did a hybrid. I I learned Screencastify very quickly, and I was making kind of podcasts of myself. Screencastify allowed you to do that and kind of bring your smart notebook files into it and add video if you wanted to. So I did kind of a combination of me doing these podcasts and me being available during office hours for students that wanted to discuss them. And then I would add in some assignments as we went. Um, We got to the end of the year. That that took us all the way into June and we never did go back, obviously. Um, In the fall, we went back originally. We were not doing live teaching. We were doing at the high school level a two day on, two day two day on with 
a blue, what we call blue and gold groups, half our students on Monday, Tuesday, half our students on Thursday, Friday, with a Wednesday hybrid online day where the students would basically come in for extra help. And that went for the first couple of months of the year. Then the, then the second phase of it was, okay, we're doing away with the Wednesdays and now we're going to have students three days a week and two days a week and then kind of flip-flop the next week. The big change to us was starting in November, we went to live teaching online um, and how to do a hybrid format where you have half your students in the class and half your students on the computer at home. And it was something that every teacher kind of had a different way of doing it from some who were very interactive with the students at home to some who were not nearly as interactive and the students at home were basically seeing the smart board, hearing the class, but it wasn't very interactive as if they were sitting in the classroom. And I think a lot of it was based on what we, what your technological ability to pull that off really was. I freely admit I was kind of towards the latter where the students are with me and can ask questions and um, speak up if they'd like, but really they're not interactive to the same level that I am with the students in the room. I felt when I was trying to be interactive with the students at home, it was to the detriment of the students that were in front of me. So I kind of made it so that I wanted to give as much of the face time as possible to the students that were in front of me. And when the gold group was going to be in later in the week, they would get the same thing from me. Interesting. Uh, and, and are you happy with your performance in this COVID era? Is there things you, you any takeaways from it that you'll take for the post-COVID era? <sighs> That's a great question. It, it's it's tricky in that I don't think that anything I'm doing this year is going to be relevant as far as the teaching in the classroom during the 40-minute period, I don't think is going to be the same next year. At least I hope it's not. I think what I'll take from it is the usefulness of Google Classroom. I think we talked a little bit about it before. The usefulness of getting assignments to students, getting video to students, um, getting interactive assignments to students. I, I got much better at that this year, and I think that I will carry forward no matter what I do. Um, as far as the teaching in the class, I'll be perfectly honest. I hope I never have to do it again. Sure. Um, maybe I'm being totally unrealistic, and I'll find myself there, and I'll try to improve on it a little bit every time I do it. But I, I, it's not a – in my opinion – it's not the healthiest way to do education. I don't think it's good for the students. I don't think it's great for us as teachers. Every four years, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years. So we get the email. There's a presidential election. Don't say anything about politics. Nothing, nada. But I'm a math teacher so that I can I can pull that off. You are in a different position, obviously, as a social studies teacher. So how do you handle those controversial questions, especially when election time is coming? I have a different way of doing it than some of my colleagues do. I've always felt it's always been a tenet of how I teach that how can I expect students to have a discussion in a room if I'm not willing to participate in it? Um, it's easy to say, okay, I'm going to be the moderator, but I'm asking kids to lay their feelings on the line. And they're really some of them, some of a lot of it comes from home and that's to be expected. That's where most people first learn about politics is in the house. But a lot of them, by the time they're 16 and 17 years old, have developed their own opinions. And I'm asking them to share those opinions. How do I do that and then not share my own? It's not fair to them. So what I do is I start on the first day of the year, especially my 12th grade government class. It comes a little later with U.S. history because it's not generally that type of class. I'm going to have that type of discussion. I'll do it. But especially with my 12th grade government, I will start on the first day and say, look, I'm a registered Republican. 
in the last in the last presidential election, and in fact, the last two now, um, I voted blank on the presidential election because I didn't think either candidate deserved it. But I voted a mostly Republican ticket the rest of the way. I'm by and large a Republican, but I have some Democratic leading tendencies and you'll figure them out as we go along and I'll speak to them as I go along. But I want you to know where I stand on issues so that when we talk about these things, judge me on them. If you think I'm being unfair, tell me I'm being unfair. If you think I'm showing an innate bias, tell me. But I'm asking you to find the innate bias in everything that you everything that you read, everything that you listen to. I'm telling you where I'm coming from so you could decide if what I'm saying is stilted in any way. Um, I tell the parents this on back to school night. And I'll tell you, in, in out of my 19 years in Bayport, I've probably taught senior government 15 or 16 of them. And all that time, I haven't gotten a complaint. What it allows the students to do is know they have a safe space where they can argue with me and say, here's why I think you're wrong. And I'll say, okay, but have you thought of this? Here's why I think you're wrong. And I like it better when they disagree. It makes for a much more interesting class. But one of the skills I think it's so vitally important to teach right now, especially in this social media age, is how to disagree without being disagreeable. You know, when you're on it, when you're on social media, you know, you just you you know, if, if somebody is to the left of you, you call them a communist. If somebody's to the right of you, you call them a fascist. We call people names. We say nasty things about them for what? Because we disagree on an issue. How can we disagree but leave the room still where I talked before about them feeling like they have safety in my room? How can we disagree? and maybe disagree very passionately, but still have the students feel safe when they're leaving. And one of the ways I I think I accomplished that is by feeling that, look, I'm putting myself on the line with you guys too. I'm not asking you to do it, but I'm going to sit in the corner and just play referee. I'm going to do it with you. And hopefully at the end of the day, we disagree. That's fine. We'll still be okay when we leave. And that's the skill they need to get out of this. And what a great skill to have because society's become so polarized. I mean, we grew up in the 80s and 90s where the disagreement did look more like probably how your classroom is. You know, we disagree on policy, but we, you know, we're all we're all on the same team. I don't see that anymore. And so that is I think that's great that you're fostering that in the classroom. I kind of teach it historically as our country is supposed to, and the way our government's set up, the way our Congress is set up, is supposed to work from the middle out. Um, just, just all the problems that you see in the Senate, there's supposed to be some sort of collegiality and some sort of agreement. And when these two sides get so split far apart, and I'm not saying one's right or one's wrong, they just get split so far apart that there's absolutely nowhere to agree in the middle that it just breaks down. And there's just a level of nastiness to it that's just very, very unfortunate. And I and I hope, at least for the students I see in front of me, I, I'm trying to show them it doesn't have to be that way. And it wasn't always this way. And let's try to find one thing we agree on before we leave the room. I'm putting you in a time machine. I'll send you back to your rookie year. What would you say to your younger self in Brownsville? What advice would you give? Oh, that's a great question. It feels like so long ago. Just, oh, you've stumped me on this one. I would tell myself understand that everything that you're going to do is going to kind of what we talked about before is going to molt and change every few years. And just because, first of all, don't think you figured everything out at first anyway. But even when you think you have figured it out, just understand, um, far be it for a social studies teacher to to quote the great historian Rowdy Roddy Piper, but just when you think you have all the answers, I change the questions. Mm. Um, when you think you finally had it figured out, 
I'm going to, you know, it's 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 going to be a totally different world a couple of years later. You think you finally figured out in the classroom, here's a smart board. You think you finally figured out, here's Google Suite. You think you finally figured it out, here's a pandemic for you. And it's going to change and it's going to evolve. And that's fine. And you're going to feel like a brand new teacher all over again. And you're going to feel like, I thought I had this all figured out. Now I stink at teaching again. That's okay. You will figure it out again. But just understand Never get in that comfort zone because you're going to have to figure it all out all over again a couple of years later. That is our first Rowdy Rowdy Piper reference on Get Schooled. <laughs> it's great. Um, <laughs> I wanted to, another thing too. I I been asking recent guests. Uh, you have a kind of a pep talk for the teachers who feel disrespected, feel their morale is low. Any any words that you could throw to our teachers in the audience who are feeling down at this point in in the COVID era? Far be it for the grievance chair of the union to quote the superintendent here, but credit to him. Um, his name is Tim Harney, and he's as good a boss as I've ever worked for in my life. He is truly a wonderful man. And one of the things he said is that we all, you know, when somebody asks, how are you doing? Um, you need to be able to tell somebody, have somebody that you can talk to that when the answer to how are you doing is not so good, talk to them. Don't be afraid to find somebody, to, to connect with somebody where you can say to them, I am having an awful day. I don't feel like this is going well. I don't feel like I'm appreciated and let them listen to you. For me, it's always, I, I just by my nature, it's always other teachers. Um, but even if it's an administrator, somebody that you can go to and say, I'm struggling here and be honest about it. Um, don't struggle by yourself. It is the worst feeling in the world to not only feel like you're in a hole, but you feel like you're in a hole and there's nobody you can turn to. I guarantee that for everybody in a building, there is at least one person you can turn to. And I've told other teachers, if there's nobody else you can turn to, then turn to me. Um, I will always be a I will always be somebody that will listen to you and give you the best advice I have in the moment. Might not be what you want to hear, but I will give you the best advice I have to give you in the moment. Even if it's just hang with them. It'll be better tomorrow. Um, that's what I would tell people. Don't struggle by yourself because when you struggle by yourself, you just dig that hole deeper and deeper and deeper to the point where when you finally ask for help, it's too late. Um, and you've dug yourself into where you can't get out of it easily. Anthony, thanks so much for joining us to talk about your experiences. We've been talking with Anthony Kern, a high school social studies teacher at Bayport Blue Point High School in New York. Anthony, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you again for having me. I think this is really important to do. Once again, thanks to our guest, Anthony Curran, for joining us on Get Schooled with Mr. S. Now, it's time for my Raise Your Hand portion of the show, where we answer listeners' questions. I feel it's important to hear from parents and teachers around the nation and share our collective experiences. So in order for you to get in touch with the show, you may tweet us at getschooled underscore pod or email us Get schooled with Mr. S at gmail.com. So raise your hand and join the conversation like Colleen from South Florida. Colleen emails, Dear Mr. S, I am a parent with a student in fifth grade, and I want to make sure she is strong enough in math and sciences as she is heading into middle school next year. How can I help her get more interested in math and science, especially this summer? And as a middle school math teacher, what do you feel is most important for students to concentrate on as they head into middle school. I look forward to your answer and enjoy listening to your podcast. Thanks for raising your hand, Colleen. 
I think fractions, decimals, percents are very important coming out of fifth grade into middle school. The ability to convert them, percents, 75%, three quarters, they should know their benchmark percents. So I would just let her work with flashcards for 10 to 15 minutes. Try to keep it light. It is summer. It's been a tough year. I wouldn't go too content heavy, but that is something she will definitely need in middle school. Uh, And I think just to try to get her interested, you might talk to family members and friends who have STEM careers. You know, can she talk to a biologist? Can she talk to someone who's a doctor? So just to open her eyes, because at age 10 and 11, it's hard to even know what you might want to do as a career. But if the students, especially at that age, upper elementary, lower middle, if they can see some real world connections, that makes the learning more interesting because it gives them a spot to where they may want to go with education. Thanks for raising your hand, Colleen. Once again, if you want to join the show, you can reach us, Twitter, at getschooled underscore pod, or by email, getschooledwithmrs at gmail.com. That's a wrap for this week's podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. We always appreciate that. Or connect with us on Twitter at getschooled underscore pod. Email getschooledwithmrs at gmail.com. Today's show was produced and edited by the Bearcat Group. Music by Patrick Patricios. Thanks for listening to Get Schooled, Mr. S. See you next time.